Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Najah Khan. I'm currently a PGY2 internal medicine resident at Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. I'm proud to be a cardio nerds fellow in house eyes event and passionate about preventative cardiology, women's heart health, and cardiovascular imaging. I'm a poet at heart, pun intended, and you can find me on Twitter at Najah A. Khan. I'm so excited to be a part of this educational platform. Thanks for tuning in to this phenomenal case from University of Maryland. In this episode, we learn from Drs. Manu Mysore, Sean Samantha, and Ravan Amir as we meander through this case discussion, which concludes with an eCPR from our expert, Dr. Gautam Brahmani. We cardio nerds are so proud to include the University of Maryland Cardiology Fellowship on our Healy Honor Roll, the list of programs who support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures and there is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Without further ado, join us for a trip to Charm City and dive into another Cardio Nerds CNCR. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds, to the podcast and another CNCR case. This is Karan. I'm from the University of Maryland, joined by Amit here today. And it is an extremely special episode for me as we're joined by my colleagues, my friends from the University of Maryland. We are in Baltimore, and I'm so excited to hear a case from my own program. So with that, I don't want to take away any time from these wonderful people. So why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourself? Alrighty. So my name is Rowan Amir. I am a second year internal medicine resident at the University of Maryland Medical Center. I did my medical school in Saudi Arabia. And outside of medicine, I love playing tennis, scuba diving, and training my little parrots. Hi, everyone. I'm Anvishan Samantha. I go by Sean. I am an advanced heart failure hospitalist here at the University of Maryland. And I'm also an assistant professor of medicine. I graduated from Kakatiya Medical College in Southern India, and then I was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I did my residency and chief residency at the University of Missouri in Kansas City before moving to Baltimore for my current job. I am going to be a cardiology fellow starting July 2021 at the same institution. During my free time, I like to watch my beloved Chelsea Football Club and the Kansas City Chiefs. Hi, everyone. My name is Manu Mysore. I am a second-year cardiology fellow here at the University of Maryland. I was born and brought up in Philadelphia for a brief period of time before moving to New Orleans, spending the majority of my time there, especially in medical school, and ending up at the University of Virginia for residency before finally ending up at the University of Maryland for cardiology fellowship. During my free time, especially during a nice summer day, love to play some tennis and avid jogger as well. Manu, Sean, and Rowan, so great to have you guys all here. Really excited for today's case. I feel like this is a bit of a homecoming. I spent for some of my favorite years of life in Baltimore. I love Charm City. Where do you guys want to hang out before we dive into some fun cardiology? So we're going to go and stay 
at the Inner Harbor, which is one of our favorite places here in Baltimore. We're going to enjoy a nice little picnic there, watching all the sailboats and talking about cardiology. What could be better than that? The Inner Harbor is beautiful. Let's grab a cup of coffee at our picnic table. And as we look upon the bay, what case do you guys have for us? Let's dive in. We actually saw a very interesting case when we were on the Advanced Heart Failure Service. So it's a 58-year-old female who basically comes in with a chief complaint of dyspnea on exertion and generalized fatigue. Now, this dyspnea on exertion just started about two days prior to presentation, and it's been rapidly progressive over the course of the last 48 hours. At baseline, she could walk without any limitation whatsoever, but can currently only walk up to 10 feet before feeling very short of breath. She denied any shortness of breath at rest. She did have some symptoms that may have been consistent with orthopnea, but no clear PND. In addition to that, she denied any lower extremity swelling, any significant weight changes, chest pain, palpitations, dizziness, or syncopal episodes. She also denied any sputum production or cough, but she did say that she noticed she's been a little wheezy over the last two days as well. She didn't have any fevers or chills and did not have any recent sick contacts or COVID exposures, which is extremely important given the current state that we are living in at the moment. The remainder of her review of systems was quite unremarkable. Sir Juan, dyspnea is a very common but a very important chief complaint that we commonly see in the hospital setting. But you know, as you mentioned, it's also very important to look at the context of the dyspnea. So what do we know from that standpoint? Yeah, so she does have quite a significant past medical history. She has a history of a heart transplant back in 2015 with a VAD explant at the time as well. She also has a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and COPD. So Rowan, you just brought up a buzzword there. And now making sense to me why you met this patient on the Advanced Heart Failure Service. And this is really going to change how we think through this patient's case. You said they had a heart transplant. So some questions immediately that I want to know about history, and we'll get to the patient's specific history about their symptomology, but regarding their heart transplant histories, why did they have a heart transplant? Was this a patient that previously had an LVAD? Did they have any other surgeries related to transplant? And has there been any complications since their heart transplant? So those are all very good questions. She had a history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy requiring a VAD about six years ago. Lucky for her, just a few months after getting her VAD, she was able to get a heart transplant and get that LVAD explanted and removed. She does have a history of mitral valve replacement as, as well. The first was about 20 years ago. The second was about 10 years later. And in regards to complication after her heart transplant, she did not have any serious complications and actually was doing well up to today. Yeah. So this is a wealth of information about this patient and it really helps us start creating a framework around dyspnea in a patient with a heart transplant. And of course, you don't want to anchor there because she's still susceptible to all the other causes of dyspnea. But this is definitely going to color how I think through her differential diagnosis and go through the next steps of her workup. Rawan, with that background in mind, how did you put together her presentation? So I'm actually really glad that you mentioned um, avoiding anchoring. It's very important for us to try to avoid making these cognitive errors, especially when we see patients like her who have a diagnosis that just really jumps to your mind at first. But we need to avoid making these like errors, anchoring, premature closure, kind of sticking to a specific diagnosis. So we need to maintain a broad differential. And when we talk about dyspnea on exertion, we have two main symptoms that we think about usually, respiratory and cardiac. So respiratory-wise, 
this patient could be just having a COPD exacerbation, especially with her history of COPD and an extensive smoking history as well. She could be having pneumonia or another respiratory infection, a pulmonary embolism, or some sort of other pulmonary pathology. In regards to cardiac, we have to keep in mind a possibility of an acute coronary event, maybe myocarditis or pericarditis, new onset heart failure. And in patients who are post-transplant in particular, we need to think about maybe allograft vasculopathy or rejection, whether it's cell-mediated or antibody-mediated. Now, if this patient came in with a more chronic course of dyspnea on exertion, for instance, over weeks or maybe even months, then I would even broaden my differential even further and think of things like anemia or, or generalized deconditioning. That's a great differential, Rowan. I think that should cover most of the possibilities in a patient with a prior heart transplant who's now presenting with acute shortness of breath. Given her history, I think it would be beneficial to ask a few more questions to further narrow the differential. For instance, do we know if she's had a viral prodrome? Do we know if she's taking her rejection medications and if she's undergoing routine rejection monitoring? And because she has COPD, do we know if she has wheezing in the setting of good air entry? Yeah, so those are all fantastic questions, Sean. So in regards to the viral prodrome, she actually did not have any prodrome or any symptoms whatsoever. And in regards to her immunosuppression, she is maintained on Celsept and Tacro, and she is compliant to both medications. And in regards to rejection monitoring, she has been on top of things. She's had an echo, left and right heart cath, and a biopsy done within the last two years prior to presentation. And they were all within a normal. Her echo showed a normal biventricular function, left heart cath showed normal coronaries, and her right heart cath and uh, biopsy showed no evidence of rejection. And in regards to COPD exacerbation with evidence of wheezing, I think it would help if we moved on to her physical exam to get more information. And may I ask, Rowan, you mentioned this earlier, but how long ago was her transplant? Her transplant was six years ago. There are a number of things that can come up in transplant patients. And this far out, we start thinking about, and you mentioned this earlier, could she have cardiac allograft vasculopathy and hence the importance of surveillance coronary angiography. But you know, it's because of the diffuse nature of allograft vasculopathy with intimal hyperplasia and smooth muscle hypertrophy, because of coronary angiography and even coronary CT are essentially luminograms, you can develop pretty significant allograft vasculopathy without actually noting it on the angiography, where the sensitivity isn't great. Hence, the, the utility of potentially using IVIS as part of the coronary angiogram to see if you do have intimal hyperplasia and or using a functional test like cardiac PET with absolute myocardial blood flow, uh, estimation for coronary flow reserves. So while it is reassuring that her coronary angiogram hasn't raised red flags during her last study, I'm not totally comforted that she doesn't have uh, CAV. So something else just to keep in mind as we go forward. Yeah, Amit, that's a fantastic discussion, specifically regarding cardiac allograft vasculopathy. And just to build off that a little bit, we know donor hearts are denervated at explantation. So a lot of times these patients will not experience typical angina, even if they have advanced cardiac allograft vasculopathy. But I think it's really important, as Rowan has done well here, is to frame this discussion. So this is a patient with essentially acute dyspnea over one to two days in a patient with a prior cardiac transplant. And so I'm beginning to think more along the lines of what are my potential acute pathologies? And Rowan, you mentioned some of them, including diagnoses not necessarily related to the heart transplant, like pulmonary embolism. Could this patient have a acute COPD exacerbation? But then I'm also starting to get concerned about the acute pathologies from the other side of this, which is the heart transplant. Could there be rejection? Could there be a, an acute infection? 
Could the patient have some reason to have developed an overwhelming infection and it's manifesting as fatigue in the setting of the immunosuppression? So I agree. I want some more information, but this is how I'm framing it. Acute dyspnea in a patient that's had a prior heart transplant, and we're thinking simultaneously of our potential differential in both those categories. So Rowan, you want to take us through the physical exam? I'd be happy to. On arrival, her initial vitals were as follows. Her blood pressure was in the hundreds over 60s, which is actually her baseline to a slightly tachycardic with a heart rate of 105, which is expected in post-transplant patients because of the denervation. She was afebrile, slightly tachypnic with a respiratory rate of 25 and borderline saturations with a sat of 94% on room air. Her weight was 180 pounds, which is at her baseline dry weight. Generally, she did appear well. She was not in any form of acute distress, but she was a little tachypnic. She appeared euvolemic, had a normal S1 and S2, was tachycardic with a regular rhythm, but there were no murmurs or added sounds, no elevated JVT, and no lower extremity swelling. In regards to her respiratory examination, she did have equal air entry bilaterally, but had some inspiratory crackles at the bases of the lungs bilaterally. She also was warm and well-perfused with good peripheral pulses. So Rowan, it sounds like someone that generally sounds like her baseline. And, you know, whenever I hear that term baseline, I always wonder who defined it and how did we define it? Is it a chart baseline? Is it based on one initial visit some time ago? And we have to remember that baselines are always shifting for these kind of patients, especially patients that are post heart transplant or any major cardiovascular procedure. So one marker is that her quote-unquote, baseline weight, which is a good thing. And as you mentioned, you don't hear any elevated JVD, you don't have any murmurs, but you are mentioning that you're hearing crackles at the bases bilaterally. And this is now in a patient that's post-heart transplant, acute dyspnea. So I still have concern for acute heart failure, especially with that borderline oxygen saturation, less than 95% and her tachypnea that you described. So I am interested to see the labs and see that initial diagnostic workup. So what happened next? So As for her labs, her CBC and coagulation profile were all within her baseline. Her CMP, though, did show evidence of acute kidney injury with an elevated creatinine up to 1.7 from a baseline of 1.1. Her NT-proBNP was elevated. D-dimer was up to 950. Trope I was 2.29 and a lactate was 2.3. We actually were very concerned about the shortness of breath and as part of our workup went ahead and got a chest x-ray for this patient. So the chest x-ray showed that she was status quo sternotomy from her heart transplant. She had patchy peripheral opacities in both lower lobes. There was some blunting of her costophrenic angles, which was consistent with pleural effusion. Due to her elevated D-dimer, we went ahead and got a CT angiogram of her chest. Luckily, this did not show a PE. However, we did see some bilateral pleural effusions or atelectasis. We also saw bibasilar mosaic attenuation consistent with small airway disease, which in her case was emphysema. The EKG showed sinus tachycardia at a rate of about 110 beats per minute. She had a right bundle branch block. There were submillimeter ST elevations in leads 1 and AVL, and ST depressions in the inferior-posterior leads. Now, the plan from here on was to go ahead and get a bedside echo, So I called Manu in the early hours of the morning to come in and help me with a bedside echo. While Manu's coming into the hospital, let's look at the differential one more time. How have we changed from where we were before? Now, initially, we were thinking this could be two main systems. This could either be a pulmonary cause or a cardiac cause. 
like Karan summarized. I'm starting to think now that this is unlikely to be a pulmonary cause. Now, we know she has COPD, but she has good air entry on physical examination and she still doesn't have any wheezing. It's unlikely to be a pneumonia in the absence of a consolidation or fevers. We ruled out a PE by our CT angiogram of the chest. So now I'm starting to think that this is more cardiac in nature. What could it be? It could certainly be an ACS because she has EKG with ST elevations and an elevated troponin. All of that is very concerning. But her symptoms also point towards a new onset congestive heart failure. Although she's euphalemic and appears to be at her baseline weight, she has congestion on her chest x-ray and crackles on auscultation with an elevated BNP. So Manu now gets to the hospital. And what do you see on the bedside echo? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Sean. Notice that for the most part, her EF looks at least moderately down with an EF of about 35%, notable global hypokinesis. I did note, however, on the lateral wall, there was some regional variation. What was also really surprising to me was that I saw evidence of moderate mitral regurgitation. So we followed that up with a formal echo. This was fairly early in the morning and the sonographers were able to come in. And the formal echo showed that Manu is a good sonographer. It confirmed the LV ejection fraction was 35%. There was global left ventricular hypokinesis, mild RV dilatation with moderately decreased RV systolic function. There was moderate mitral regurgitation, mild tricuspid regurgitation, mild pulmonary hypertension, and a dilated inferior vena cava. Just thinking about where we are right now, you've got this patient who's got very clear evidence of cardiac injury, right? You've got an elevated troponin, you've got EKG changes, and you've got a depressed LV ejection fraction with global hypokinesis. And so we know that she's got cardiac injury. Now we can think about, okay, like what are the causes of cardiac injury? And in any patient, you think, okay, is this a non-ischemic injury like myocarditis, stress cardiomyopathy, etc.? Or is this an ischemic cause, right, in terms of coronary atherosclerosis or SCAD or vasospasm or any of those causes? But within the context of transplant, in addition to all of those causes, you also begin to wonder, okay, is this some sort of acute insult on a primary graft failure? Is this rejection? Or does she have cardiac allograft vasculopathy, an acute insult on top of that? So all of these things are running in your mind, and time really is myocardium, especially if things like rejection are on the table. So I really applaud you guys for how quickly you're evaluating this. I think that the impulse to get a bedside focus to quickly understand the situation is very important here. And it's all hands on deck right now, right? This patient has active cardiac injury. There's active troponin leak. What was the next step? I agree with you, Amit. The time is myocardium here. And uh, Manu, I fully appreciate the dilemma that you and Rowan and Sean are in because I'm in the same position as you. We're co-fellows. And what's going on here, I'm certainly wondering, you know, there's ST elevation on the EKG. There's evidence of uh, myocardial injury. Patients with post-transplant may not have the classic angina symptoms. So wondering about your process and thinking through, do I activate the lab right this second? And what kind of influenced your decision there? Now, that totally makes sense, Karen. These were some of the same thoughts that were coming across us as we were taking care of our patient. One, the ST elevations, the elevated troponin, those are all things that kind of wanted to push us towards a more expedited evaluation for what was going on. It definitely concerned us. And so I'll leave it to Sean to kind of go ahead and explain what, what was seen further. And that expedited evaluation is not just going to be a look at the coronaries, but also tissue here, as Amit was referencing, that this could be acute rejection. So it's not just an expedited evaluation to see what the coronaries look like, but we also need to get into myocardial biopsy. So Sean, what did it reveal? 
That's right, Karen. We first proceeded with a left heart catheterization because we were more concerned about an ischemic event that was going on. But thankfully, the left heart cath showed angiographically normal coronary arteries with a right dominant system. So that was a huge sigh of relief. We then proceeded to perform a right heart catheterization. And the pressure seen on right heart cath were 20 in the right atrium, RV 49 over 21, PA 44 over 29 with a mean of 36. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 30. The FIC cardiac output was 3.78. And the FIC cardiac index was 1.89. The pulmonary artery saturation was 62%. And we got three endomyocardial biopsies before the patient was transferred back to the cardiac care unit. So taking a look at these numbers, Sean, sounds like she's got elevated right-sided filling pressures with the diastolic ventricular pressures being around the 20s or so. And it looks like based on her PA pressure, she's got at least moderate pulmonary hypertension that appears to be post-capillary in nature with an elevated wedge pressure of around 30. And by thick, it appears as if she has a depressed cardiac index, keeping in mind, however, that this is an assumed thick that was not necessarily studied in a transplant setting and a PA set of around 62% to kind of correlate with that as well with the biopsy samples pending. That's right, Manu. I, I, I think our differential shifted significantly after these findings. Previously, we had been most concerned about coronary occlusion, whether that was from plaque rupture, whether that was sudden coronary artery dissection, or a subacute process like coronary allograft vasculopathy. We were able to successfully rule these out through the left heart catheterization, and we were waiting on the biopsy samples. So at this point, we were thinking, what is the cause of her new onset congestive heart failure. We were thinking along the lines of a non-ischemic cause after the left heart catheterization, and myocarditis was certainly something we were considering very strongly. Stress cardiomyopathy was less of a possibility because of the findings on the echocardiogram, so rejection was probably the top on our differential. So to arrive at a final diagnosis, we would still have to wait for the results of the endomyocardial biopsy. So in the meanwhile, how would we manage this patient, for one? So the patient was admitted and arrived to the floor. Unfortunately, within hours of her arrival, she did become more hemodynamically unstable and required initiation of a dobutamine drip in the setting of right heart failure and cardiorenal syndrome. While waiting for this EMB, we decided to continue her immunosuppressive therapy with Celsept and Tacro. We also preemptively started treating her for rejection because, like you mentioned, it was our top differential at the time, and we started her on methylprednisolone daily. Lucky for the patient and lucky for us as well, within 24 hours of that biopsy, we did get a preliminary report stating that it was consistent with grade 2 acute cell-mediated rejection. Manu, would you be able to tell us what is acute cellular rejection? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Thanks, Sean, Rowan. Indeed, it's a very complex term that I hope to simplify for our audience. So with cellular-mediated rejection, going down to the immunology, you essentially have kind of a couple processes going on. One, you have T-cells that may have already been triggered or activated in the past due to a prior antigen exposure, currently directly attacking the donor graft's tissue or cells. And or two, you have prior exposure from the donor graft, causing antigen expression, triggering T-cell production, which will later directly attack the donor graft tissue. A lot of times, this can be seen or more commonly seen in younger patients who are female, sometimes even African-American. And those with increased HLA mismatches, those are kind of a set of polymorphic genes that code for cell surface proteins 
that are essential for an adaptive immune system. So this correlates very well with our patient population that we see in general and even in this particular case as well. Manu, how do we diagnose cell-mediated rejection? Yeah, that's another great question to ask. A lot of times we start off with the basics. You can never forget a good history and physical. One, kind of asking basic heart failure symptoms. Two, asking whether they've been taking their immunosuppression as prescribed and not missing any doses. Three, it's also important to note a very good physical exam, the presence of new murmurs, the presence or signs of elevated jugular venous distension, or other signs or markers of uh, volume overload. EKG, whether you see the presence of the new arrhythmias, which could even then also be considered a marker of rejection. And lastly, a good bedside or formal echocardiogram. You know, those are all very, very important features to look at prior to even consideration of an endomyocardial biopsy. Thanks, Manu. That was very helpful. But how do we grade it and why do we do this? No, fantastic. Vital questions that are very important to the care of our patient. So looking at the gradation, grade zero to grade three is the new system of how we grade cellular rejection. Grade zero being no signs of rejection, kind of grade 1R being mild signs of interstitial or perivascular infiltrate airing one foci of damage. Two or grade 2R being moderate signs of acute cell-mediated rejection, where you see two or more foci infiltrates causing associated myocardial damage. And then there's also grade three rejection, where you have diffuse infiltrates with multifocal myocardial necrosis. Fantastic. So going back to our patient, she had grade two acute cellular rejection. Now, what's the significance of the grading and how does it affect her? Yeah. So in general, the treatment is based on one, hemodynamics, and two, where they fall under the grading system. So with grade one acute cell-mediated rejection, for a good number of people, you can consider almost an observation, kind of treating symptomatically as needed. The exception to that rule being with those who have signs of hemodynamic compromise, whether that is through a depressed cardiac index or elevated wedge pressure, and those are where we consider an escalation to include maybe some low-dose steroids at the time. Grade 2 cellular rejection, we would consider preemptively or already starting pulse-dose steroids. With those who come with grade 2 rejection and hemodynamic compromise, for those patients, we do continue the pulse-dose steroids as mentioned before, but we also consider other medications to our armamentarium, such as antithymocyte globulin, where we essentially have antibodies formed in a different vector attacking or decreasing a high oncologic or lymphocytic burden, which is kind of promoting the attack on our immune system. And lastly, there's grade three acute cellular rejection, where we kind of have similar therapies, which includes the high dose steroids as well as medications such as antithymocyte globulin. So going back to our patient, what did we do, Rowan? Yeah. So for our patient, given the fact that she had grade two ACR on the biopsy, in addition to being hemodynamically uh, compromised, we opted to go ahead and start with ATG as well as the steroids. So we, she completed a full course of three days of daily ATG, and we, we closely monitored her CD3 counts throughout that time. We also continued a steroid taper. And within 48 hours, the patient was weaned off uh, of dobutamine completely. Unfortunately, a few days after that, she developed new onset AFib with RVR, requiring amiodarone load followed by a maintenance dose. And given her CHADS-VASC score of 4, she was started on apixaban for anticoagulation. 
Ravon, you made up a great point right there. A lot of times we obviously consider CHAZVASC when we're trying to decide on anticoagulation in the setting of examples like atrial fibrillation. But it's also very important to note that the CHAZVASC wasn't necessarily studied in a post-transplant patient, wasn't exactly the patient population that we look at. In fact, newer literature has looked at cases of atrial fibrillation postoperatively and many weeks after uh, transplant, where they have even suggested that we should kind of almost automatically consider anticoagulation in that population, given how high risk they are from suffering from complications post-transplant. And so that's something very important to note. And I think regardless of the fact, I think she was appropriately started necessary anticoagulation. And a lot of times we continue to follow these patients kind of months after months around the three-month part before we decide on ceasing anticoagulation and or antiarrhythmics. So the patient continued on this course and 10 days after her admission, she actually looked clinically well enough to be discharged. But we did want to get a transthoracic echo just to see how her LV function was before sending her home. So the transthoracic echo before discharge showed minimal improvement in LV ejection fraction and mitral regurgitation. She was then started on goal-directed therapies and discharged to be followed up outpatient. We saw her in clinic about a month later. Her weights appeared to have been stable from prior, although she did note some improvement upon her dyspnea upon exertion. We were further able to uptitrate her goal-directed medical therapies at the time, and she was continued on a prolonged steroid taper. She eventually did have um, a repeat endomyocardial biopsy three or four weeks or so post-treatment uh, when she had grade zero or no evidence of acute cellular or even antibody-mediated rejection. An echo was done right around the time of that right heart cath with biopsy, which showed a slight improvement in her LV function with an EF of about 40% and slight improvement in her RV function, as well as mild to moderate MR and normal pulmonary artery pressures. Manu, thanks for giving us that follow-up. It's really helpful to go back and see how our patients did after we discharged them from the hospital, because many of us do see our patients in the inpatient setting. But recognizing that this patient's transplant was over five years ago, the incidence of cellular rejection, my understanding is that it does go down with time. So were you ever able to identify what was the risk factor for her developing cellular rejection so late into her course? And as a follow-up to that, did you guys end up modifying her maintenance immunosuppression in any way? Those are great questions, Amit. To be quite honest, we did not necessarily find a, a significant risk factor beyond kind of the factors that she had. But especially in the late transplant setting, we didn't really find, unfortunately, that kind of conveyed that information for us. We did have some minor dose adjustments to our immunosuppression regimen thereafter, but overall, unfortunately, like you said, we weren't able to find a a great answer as to why that had happened. Yeah, you know, sometimes you don't have all the answers, but uh, thankfully she had a nice course, and I imagine she'll be getting surveillance for ejection pretty closely. And I agree with you, Amit, that surveillance is going to be critical going forward, and it's not just monitoring for the surveillance of myocardial function in this patient, but also what are the complications of the treatment that we give. So, of course, we're going to monitor for potential opportunistic infections, but also these patients, especially those that receive polyclonal antilymphocyte antibodies like the antithymocyte that this patient received, is going to be at more risk of things like lymphoma or post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. So these are all things that we're going to have to monitor for. And we didn't necessarily mention this case, but these are also an important thing is monitoring for CMV, especially in patients that have had depletion of their immune system like they have had aggressively in this case here. 
So this is, again, a fantastic case. It's such a pleasure for me to hear a case from my own institution and from colleagues and friends. Rowan, I think you're in a unique position and being that you're still in your internal medicine residency and hopefully soon in cardiology and maybe for our audience out there, especially those that are still in their internal medicine training. What were some of your main takeaways? So this case was actually my first one-on-one experience with acute rejection. So it was a very humbling experience from start to finish. My main takeaways from this experience was to, to keep in mind how these patients present with such vague symptoms, fatigue, just not feeling like themselves, maybe symptoms of heart failure. So you just have to be on high alert and have your spidey senses on in such situations. And obviously the treatment of rejection and how to grade them and how to decide what treatment to give based on rejection, especially when it comes to reaching out to our pathology colleagues and asking them for help. It was a really uh, unique experience. I think one of the biggest things that I learned is also is just to to remember to stay on top of things and, and act quickly when the suspicion is there. Sean was on top of it, immediately called Manu for help overnight. And things happened so quickly. And that likely played a very big role in why this patient ended up having such a wonderful outcome at the end. Yeah, Rowan, uh, thank you so much for going over that. And, you know, I like when we initially began this case, how you said that we should avoid anchoring bias and premature closure. And so certainly, I think starting up broad is very important in every context, but, you know, zeroing in on the risk factors that our patients have are so important. And I think within a patient who has transplant, they're at risk for a number of things that are unique to that population, right? Either related to the graft or unrelated to the graft. Related to the graft, you may think about primary graft failure, rejection, like we discussed in this case, and cardiac allograft vasculopathy. And outside the graft, you can think about complications from the immunosuppression, infection, malignancy, and other organ failure, like calcineurin inhibitor-related kidney dysfunction. And I think one of my main takeaways from your main takeaways is keep up your spidey sense, right? Some patients present in the crash and burn type of scenario and other presentations where the diagnosis is just as critical may be more insidious, right? And so a high index of suspicion is very important. So thank you so much for teaching us. Phenomenal case. I'm glad the patient did well and was under your care. And for us, myself, Karan, Manu, and Sean, we've all signed up our lives over to cardiology. We're very excited about it. But it's so refreshing for us to see how excited you are about this field. And you're just a few months shy of applying for cardiology fellowship. All the best. I'm sure you're going to do wonderfully. But I'd love to hear what what was it about cardiology that inspired you to take the plunge? Yeah, thank you so much. I'm hoping for the best as well. <laughs> so cardiology truly is not your classic traditional medical field. I mean, really think about it. You have to have that holistic approach. It's very thought provoking, very mentally challenging. So you do spend a lot of your time thinking and kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together. But at the same time, it requires a lot of additional skills for all these hands-on procedures, whether they're cardiac cats or cardiac device placements. And then on top of that, performing and reading different forms of cardiac imaging. So is it medicine? Is it surgery? Is it radiology? It's actually all combined in one field. And that's amazing. And then after your fellowship, if you decide, well, I think I like heart failure better, then you get to do that for the rest of your life. And I love it. And also we are currently living in what I believe is the era of cardiology, completely unbiased. But we have discoveries that are coming out and advancements on a daily basis in the field of cardiology. And and being lucky enough to be living this experience, it's just, it's incredibly exciting and makes makes me think of what I can do in this field, hopefully soon in the future to help take it 
further into the future, hopefully one day. I, I'm just smiling ear to ear while you were speaking there, Rowan. We, we often discuss a few things on the podcast. We end it with what makes your heart flutter. And then Amit will, and Dan will send out hashtag why cardiology. And that was just a combination of that both. To hear your excitement about the field, about how you can contribute, about the diversity of the field, about the number of different ways that we can be useful in this field and help patients. That was amazing. It's a fantastic way to end the episode. It is making me more and more inspired to go back to work with Manu, Sean, and you, Ruan, on Monday. So hopefully I'll see you all of there. Thanks again, everybody. And now for the ECPR segment from our very own Dr. Gautam Ramani, beloved attending here at the University of Maryland, a advanced heart failure and pulmonary hypertension attending, a man with a great smile behind that mask. This is Gautam Ramani from the University of Maryland, and I am absolutely delighted and thrilled to join this Cardio Nerds podcast. I have listened to many of these previously, and to be invited to participate is truly an honor. I am one of the heart failure faculty members at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. My training is in advanced heart failure, mechanical circulatory support, and heart transplantation. And although more recently I've migrated into the pulmonary hypertension space, my passion really remains with heart transplantation. The journey shared with patients through sickness and then to health and then on to recovery from heart transplantation is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling as a physician. And for patients with stage D heart failure, heart transplantation remains the most effective treatment with a 10 to 12 year survival in 50 to 60% of patients. So despite novel therapies, medications, devices for patients with stage C heart failure, when heart failure progresses, transplantation really is the most effective treatment. And when we think about thoracic transplant with lungs and hearts, heart transplantation is much more efficacious and has much better outcomes than lung transplantation. And one of the main reasons stems from the fact that the lungs participate in gas exchange. They are directly exposed to the external atmosphere. I was really uh, delighted and honored to be invited to discuss this case of rejection. And one of the challenges that heart transplant physicians face is when we manage the post-transplant patient is this balance between preventing rejection but not over-suppressing the immune system too much. Because in the short term, over-immunosuppression may lead to infections, viral infections or bacterial infections. But in the long term, over-immunosuppression increases the risk of malignancies, mainly skin cancers and lymphomas. So a lot of our work is designed to make sure you're suppressed, but not too suppressed. And it's still pretty rudimentary how we do this. We monitor blood levels of drugs. We check viral titers for things like CMV to make sure that these aren't turning positive. But there still is no holy grail to really adequately assess how much a patient is at risk for infection or their risk for rejection. So one of the things as a transplant doctor is you actually have a minor in immunology. So all of us, I think, are basic immunologists. And for the purposes of this, we think of T cells and B cells. So T lymphocytes, which are CD3 positive, are the ones most involved in cellular rejection. 
that's where we see the lymphocytes in the myocardium endomyocardial biopsy specimens. And the B cells, which produce antibodies, are the ones more involved with antibody-mediated or humoral rejection. And in these cases, you don't see lymphocytic infiltrates, but you see evidence of macrophages, cell swelling, and you actually can see complement deposition on immunofluorescence or immunohistochemistry. And so when we think about our patient, this was a young woman who had a cellular rejection following transplant. Now, rejection is most common in the early transplant phase. While we are determining the appropriate dose of immunosuppression while we're managing side effects and the immune system may be more active, rejection is more common. As you get years beyond the transplant date, the likelihood of cellular rejection drops. The likelihood of antibody-mediated rejection or a late rejection increases over time. So in this patient, you know, her symptoms and left ventricular dysfunction, we diagnosed her with ACR2, or a grade 2 cellular rejection, which was treated with more aggressive immunosuppression. And the question really is, how effective will it be, and how much will it affect her post-transplant course? And we determine this by seeing, does her left ventricular function recover? When we re-biopsy her, is there evidence that the myocardium is healing, and are there no longer lymphocytes present in the endomyocardial biopsy specimen? If the function recovers and she doesn't develop systolic dysfunction or even diastolic dysfunction and the biopsy cleans up and we can manage the immunosuppression and prevent further rejection episodes, her outcome is actually quite good and then she can move along very well. If the left ventricular function doesn't recover or in some cases if the heart becomes stiff, kind of restrictive, then patients may develop symptoms similar to like when they had heart failure, shortness of breath propensity to swell, and then long-term survival may be compromised. Antibody-mediated rejection, or AMR, has a worse prognosis once it develops. And a lot of this is related to the fact that the cells that produce the antibodies have memories, and once the antibodies are produced, they are sometimes difficult to shut down, even when we give a very aggressive immunosuppressive therapy. So, The surveillance for this patient would involve repeat biopsies, repeat echocardiogram, monitoring the hemodynamics, and ensuring that the immunosuppression level is appropriate for her. But as I mentioned before, rejection really isn't the only complication that can happen post-transplant. One of the other complications that we see is called coronary arterial vasculopathy, or CAV. And CAV is more of a chronic, slow-going process, which results in intimal narrowing and pruning of the coronary arteries and leads to narrowing. It's really not an atherosclerotic process per se, but more of an intimal proliferation. And this is something that we screen for. You know, sometimes patients may present with dyspnea or fatigue or an unexplained drop in ejection fraction but oftentimes they won't have chest pain because the heart is de-enervated. And once coronary arterial vasculopathy develops, it's very difficult to reverse. Sometimes modulating the immunosuppression has been shown to possibly have an effect. We know that statins have a preventative effect in developing coronary arterial vasculopathy. But when CAV develops, 
and especially if it progresses and patients become symptomatic, uh, one of the things we think about is retransplantation. We know that stenting or revascularization of coronary arteries may improve symptoms, but it doesn't have any effect on long-term allograft survival. So in patients who have n- are not sensitized, meaning they don't have antibodies, and especially those who have preserved renal function, we think that retransplantation may be an option for a severe progressive coronary arterial vasculopathy. In terms of other transplant complications, we see renal insufficiency not uncommonly. The tacrolimus or cyclosporin, kind of the calcineurin inhibitors, which are the key medication to prevent transplant rejection, are nephrotoxic. And so we, you know, monitor those levels carefully and approximately 20 to 30% of patients in the immediate peritransplant period may develop some degree of renal insufficiency. And especially if diabetes or hypertension develops later on, it increases the risk of renal insufficiency. And finally, we talked about malignancy, which often results from over-immunosuppression, which is very difficult to detect. Our patients are typically screened annually to look for skin cancers, squamous cell carcinomas or basal cells. They get age-appropriate cancer screening, and when they have unexpected weight loss or unexpected lymphadenopathy, we oftentimes evaluate for PTLD, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, which can occur as one of the more common malignancies. So, circling back to our case, the rejection is not entirely uncommon. We know that women, especially African-American women, are more prone to rejection than men. And especially age has somewhat of an impact. The younger patients are more susceptible because the immune system is more active and it becomes more senescent with age. And so she fits the phenotype of someone who would be at risk for rejection. So optimistically, if her left ventricular function recovers and her biopsy cleans up and she remains compliant with her medications, this rejection episode should not affect her post-transplant course. So once again, I thank the CardioNerds team for inviting me to participate in this discussion of a patient with uh, rejection post-transplantation. Thank you. I just have to say, Rohan, is it medicine? Is it surgery? Is it radiology? No, it's cardiology. I love it. (laughs) Oh my God. Rohan, why didn't I consult you before my fellowship interviews? (laughs) <laughs> I'm so ready for this. You don't know, man. <laughs> I <don't> like- <laughs> <laughs>